welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guests on the Kiran Yoga podcast is Anthony Prem Khaleesi and Heather Rada Khaleesi. They came together in 2007 in Sri Lanka. 2009, the Ashtanga Yoga Research Institute was born in Ubud, Bali. They bring together the teachings and the individualization that Krishnamacharya taught. Working in a personal way, their priority is to make the needs of the individual understood in the practice. Prem is considered a doctor of Ayurveda and Rada has a deep interest in Ayurveda, particularly in the area of food and nutrition. She loves Ayurvedic cooking and on a regular basis shares cooking classes and nutritional guidance consultations. Prem began learning from Guruji Patabi Joyce back in 1978. Radha's Ashtangi journey began with Chuck Miller and Mati Israti in 1990 at Yoga Works, followed by her first trip to Mysore in 1995. In 2007, Prem completed The Only Way Out Is In, his seminal book on his journey with Ashtanga Yoga, and they currently live and teach from their home in Bali up to this day. Welcome to the Keenan Yoga podcast, Prem and Radha. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you. <laughs> Great that you could come. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit about your uh, history with yoga, uh, maybe Prem and, and then Radha, and how you got into it, how you got into yoga, maybe how you got into Ashtanga Yoga, just to introduce yourself a little bit to the audience. People haven't heard yet. <laughs> I'm, not that. I'm sure they have, but I'm sure. On the other hand, it probably comes out a bit different every time, you know, every time you tell it. You know. It may come out a little different, although. Yeah. Or just make some stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> it well, I was born as a young child in India. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, let's see. I. I got introduced to yoga through some friends of mine in California. And at that particular time, I had heard of yoga. I, I knew about it, but I wasn't interested necessarily. But these friends seemed to think that I would be uh, extremely uh, enthusiastic about it because it was a strong yoga. And, and I was very athletic at the time. I was surfing and playing basketball and quite fit you know, and took care of myself on a Western level. I had a, a, a sad diet, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, this standard American diet, which is hamburgers, and whatever. Yeah. Um, but I, I seem to be surviving, although I was, um, and I, I mentioned this in my, in my book too, that I was, I was doing a, a fair amount of uh, drugs at the time. <laughs> I was I was uh, I, you know I was just I was just uh, graduating from university, and uh, there was at that particular time I don't know maybe some of your viewers have seen uh, the movie Blow, and there it was it was about cocaine it was like yeah. the cocaine explosion that was happening in Southern California, and I was right in the middle of that, 
so there was a lot of there was a lot of that floating around in the university and there was a lot of money there and so i was going down not a great path and i could feel it i could feel it in me that i was it was very confusing time for me because i was i was concerned about where where am i going in my life you know like what, what is this really all about and i was very troubled about it because i i didn't really want to go into the field that i was pursuing which was education i was going to go into educating young children and um i i really loved being around kids but i didn't like the way the structure of the educational system was so i was in this in this kind of quadrum of like wow i really i'm not really happy with my life and what's mm-hmm. going on and then these these two women insisted i come to this yoga class and i i kind of went along with it and showed up and I was blown away. I, I was really, I was really touched because I had never thought that, that yoga was anything like that. And it was, it was a Mysore room. It was uh, Mysore room meaning self-practice. And uh, it was in a big church. It was a church that was, that uh, was completely gutted out. So there was, there was no seats or anything. It was just carpeted. And um, there was probably 20, 25 people practicing Ashtanga at that particular time. And they were doing, there was people doing primary, intermediate, advanced series. And at that particular time, and traditionally the the system has been set up and that's what we do too. Mm. When someone's a complete beginner, we have them just watch, just to see if they're, you know, just to watch and see what they're getting into and how it's taught. So I sat on the side and just watched. And I was completely blown away by just the feeling in the room. And so who, who were the teachers then? It was um, Gary Lopadota and Brad Ramsey. Okay, so that was the same one as um, the same church that Tim Miller talks about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tim and I were, uh, were students at the same time. I think he had started maybe nine months before me. Okay. And we turned out to be roommates, um, maybe just, yeah, just after that, after, after Patabi Joyce came to the school that I was studying at. And that's an interesting story, too, because I, I started practicing the next day. They asked me, hey, okay, so do you want to start? I said, yes. You know, I was really enthusiastic. And, um, and then... The, the next day I started and I learned slowly, slowly, but I progressed quite quickly. I was quite proficient at it. I, you know, being athletic and, um, I mean, I could touch my toes. I, I wasn't like super flexible, Yeah, but I did, I, I, I held my own. And then after about three months of practice, um, the Tommy Joyce showed up and there was, there was a buzz when I first started. And I was like, okay, this guy from India is going to come and, and teach a little bit. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into. So when he showed up, there was this big tribe of people from Hawaii that came. And our room swelled from like 20 people to 40 people. So the room was completely packed, 40, 45 people. And, um, you know, the, room, the, the people from, from Hawaii was David Williams and Nancy Gilgoff and... Hmm. Uh, 
who else stood up at that particular time? You guys would know David Swenson and Danny Paradise mm-hmm. and a few other, you know, heavyweights that were like these old yogis. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they weren't that old. Yeah. <laughs> there, there was one guy that was about, he, I think he was 50 years old at that time. His name was Cliff Barber. Oh, he was there, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he, I mean, they are, obviously, all these people are a bit older now, and Cliff is, you know, he's 90. I mean, he's still... Yeah, living yeah. In, he's, yeah he's 90. He's, not, no, he's living in, a, you know, I you know, I met Cliff because I was working in Crete a lot, and, you know, he oh, okay. for 10 years, but I saw him when he was about 80, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, because I, I showed up, and he was 50, and that was, like, 40-something years ago. But I think at that time he was called Old Cliff, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The funny about it is that, like, I'm 65 now. I I don't necessarily consider 50 old. I look back at 50, it was like 50 is nothing. (laughs) But for you at the time, yeah, it is kind of funny, isn't it? Yeah. Um, That that sounds an amazing time. And what, I mean, before getting on to Rada, um, what were the Batabi Joyce? What were your initial impressions of Batabi Joyce? And obviously, he wasn't teaching the lead class as we know it now, right? That came a lot later. So, how just to kind of sideline slightly, how how was that? I mean, it's an incredible time that you happen to you know have the luck to to be involved in. You know how how was it? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, what what an opportunity for me to start with someone who basically created this method and uh, had a presence about him. And I think he was he was about sixty two at the time when I met him. So, you know, and, and he was just getting going, which, which is really interesting. I've talked to Tim and, and we, we talked about like, wow, when we met Guruji, Tommy mm-hmm. Joyce, he was just getting going. And we were like, oh, my God, we're just starting. Because <laughs> Tim, Tim's, yeah, Tim's maybe a year or two older than me. And... Um, but he was he was robust, like he had a lot of energy and he was very he was very happy to have like this group of students in uh, in Southern California. And um, he was he was very uh, he was very strong in his in his presence and his adjustments. Like he really made you go deep. He he pushed really hard and we were warned about that beforehand. Already yeah. at that time, it was already oh, yeah. like okay, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he really cranked people, <laughs> and um, so the the teacher Brad and, and Gary they said like if he comes up and he starts doing a strong adjustment on you, just breathe, just go with it, don't resist, <laughs> don't fight, and um, that advice came in handy many many times <laughs> because he was he was quite forceful. And um, yeah, I've, I've never been that sore in my whole life. I don't think. And he was there for about five or six months. Oh my and, god! Uh, so he stayed that long at that time. Yeah, he stayed that long. Yeah, in one go. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. It was it was quite it was quite unique. He stayed with Manju, and he and he taught at this uh, studio or the church. And then um, yeah, at the end of that, he invited everybody and. I, I took him up on his invitation and went the next year in 79. And Brad and Gary went, and uh, a few other people from Encinitas went. And that was like the first group of people that ever went to Mysore. 
Oh, that was it, right. So, had, what about Norman? Norman Allen was he there before, or I think I'm not sure when Norman went there. Um, I think maybe he came a little bit after because we went in '79, and maybe he came in the early '80s. And and Nancy, sure Nancy and David Williams. Nancy and David went for the first time in '73, I believe. Oh wow. And then they brought they brought Gurji to America the very first time in '75, and then I was in the second round mm-hmm. in '78. Just to get some chronology on it, yeah, yeah, incredible. So, yeah, yeah, that's my story in a nutshell. Okay, right. I mean, we could definitely, you know, we'd definitely like to hear more about that. But you know, <laughs> Rada, can you can you just tell us a little bit about your uh, background, please? Yeah. Sure. Um, so, let's see. So it's not as exciting. It's, it's probably, <laughs> to be honest, it is exciting. <laughs> you know, you study Dr. Maddie, so that's you know that's something. You know, that, that's he's also he's quite a storyteller too. So right. <laughs> I'm not as exciting. <laughs> um, let's see. So I started. Um, I started yoga when I was 20, and uh, I had. I didn't really know anything about yoga. It was one of those things where I, um, I don't know, like I had no friends doing it. No, nobody in the family. Um, I was in college and for some reason I looked it up in the yellow pages <laughs> and I found this logo that said yoga works and I thought, Oh, that looks kind of cool. You know, and I called them up. It's a catchy name. It was catchy. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I called up and I said, hi, I'd like to come do a yoga class. And they said, oh, okay, you come to Ashtanga Prep. So I was like, all right. You know, that meant nothing to me. I thought, what is Ashtanga anyway, right? So I go to the school and I, I go to this class. And, and that was in, and that was when, ni- 1990s? It was in like something like April of 1990. And um, okay. it was at, in Santa Monica, California, which uh-huh. was a, you know, I don't know how many people will know the school Yoga Works. Yeah, I know it's pretty it was a big, well known. Yeah, a yeah. School a long time ago, you know. Yeah. Uh, now I heard it's actually completely closed, but that's another story. Yeah, um, recently, yeah. But <laughs> with its original owners, Chuck Miller and Matthias Ratti, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Actually, um, yeah, so my first teacher at this Ashtanga Prep class was, was Chuck. Chuck Miller was my first teacher, which was pretty amazing. Um, and I was, I don't know, like from the moment I took the first class, I, I think I told this on another podcast, but I came out of the class and I said to Chuck, oh, I really love that. I think I'm going to be a yoga teacher someday. <laughs> and he was, <laughs> I think he was like, He's like yes, oh, really? okay, whatever. <laughs> so yeah, that was my beginning. So I didn't start with Mysore actually. I started with, um, with like Ashtanga prep classes, and then they got. So I it was like a lit. It was like a partial, half partial half primary, and then I got it got mixed in with my mm. sort. So at one point, I was doing like a little bit of both, and oh, okay. some of my earlier teachers were people like uh, Shiva Ray, who was teaching Ashtanga at that yeah. time. But again, it was it was a lot of lead classes mm. um, mixed in with some Mysore classes, and uh, Mati became a teacher of mine as well. But that was that was years later. Mm. And then Guruji got mixed in there because um, I studied with Chuck and I think Shiva. That was in my first five years. And then I went to see Guruji five years later in 1990. Actually, I think it was the beginning of 96. So like 
beginning of 96, I went to India. Then uh, I saw Guruji in India, and that was a really amazing experience for me. And then when I came back from that trip, I studied with Mati. And so I I had quite a few really prominent teachers in, mm. my, in the beginning. You, you worked with a lot of people at Yoga Works. There was, yeah, Yoga Works. Everybody was going through there. Every, yeah, Yoga Works was All the prominent teachers place. of every different discipline was going through there. We were lucky to have, like, for example, like, I, I was blessed to work with Dina Kingsford, like, a long time ago, right. you know? And, mm-hmm. um, gosh, I mean... You had Tapa Yengar people. Tapa Yengar people, Donna Holloman, Gabriella Jubilaro, Richard Freeman, Tim Miller. I mean, I could go on. I would be afraid to miss some names. <laughs> there were so many, um, yeah, amazing teachers that I got exposed to. It was really quite a blessing. And you must have met Chuck early on, Prem, when he came. Did he come at that time into the church when Batabi Joyce was there? You know, I, I'm not sure if Chuck was there at that particular time. He knew, well, I think because Chuck and Mati brought Guruji to Yoga Works, at, I mean, before I started there, maybe. I, was, I think Chuck started in the, in the 80s. I don't know. I think Chuck and Richard started in the 80s. Absolutely. Right. Mm. So a little bit later than me, maybe a, a year or two later. Mm. But I knew of, of him for sure. Yeah. I was. Yeah, what was your experience? I mean, obviously, Mati's passed recently. She was, you know, I was. You know, I was kind of close to, to Matty. Um, she was a you know a big influence on my practice. Um, how how um how did you find her? Just to you know give her a little bit of um, credit here. Yeah, um, she's was an amazing teacher. Um, you know, I started working with Matty because let's see, I think it was like nineteen ninety six or seven. I had come back from India. And at that point, I was getting asked to teach, even though I wasn't necessarily pursuing teaching, I was getting asked. And like, So it was one of those things where I started teaching private classes and I was teaching in the morning. And somehow, I, I don't know, I was just like, oh, I think I'm going to go to Mati's class in the afternoon. She used to teach in the afternoon, which typically we, you know, Prem and I usually don't even advise people to practice in the afternoon, mm. but I kind of stumbled into it and I felt like she really kind of embraced me in a certain way. And, um, I had never had a female teacher at that up, up until that point. And it was, for me, it was really special to have that. I just felt like I got a different kind of acknowledgement from her and it was what I needed at that time. And, uh, not to mention that I mean, now I can really say, I mean, she had so much wisdom that I don't even think I understood as a young student. But now looking back um, at so many of the things that she would do for her students and the way that she taught, I just, it's, it was really amazing. Like she's a, was a very gifted, gifted teacher. The price she didn't kind of make you understand it. I remember her screaming at me from, a, you know, across the room what are you oh, doing? Yeah. what are you doing you know oh. with her accent you know oh my god i uh, can't believe that you know <laughs> like <laughs> i can hear her right now yeah yeah <laughs> and then next moment i've got some belts around me and i'm up against the pole kind of <laughs> the pole you know 
after kind of, you know, showing off with some advanced day movement, you know, she just looks and gets me back against the pole. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of, um, so what your I mean, having had these early experiences, obviously rather a bit later, Prem, super early, I didn't realise quite how early you were. I mean, and you, you kind of experienced a certain kind of quote unquote tradition or the inception of a tradition and then lastly seeing how that's moved on um i believe at, at the center that you know that you're running in bali you're teaching from those earlier experiences of it how you were originally taught is that right would you like to say something about your feeling of tradition or how you originally taken it something around that perhaps yeah i i would say that we we approach it um from the standpoint of of what the what I I believe and feel that Patabi Joyce wanted to go in the direction of that and Krishnachar, because we've we've added an element of individualizing it and modifying it accordingly and taking certain things out and putting some other things in. Um, and I I feel that it's it's um, the the research that we have been doing over these decades. Has, has given us the insight into this is what needs to happen. And I, I feel that Katabi wasn't able to convey it as, as clearly as he could have in regards to individualizing the, the systematic way in which it was presented. I feel like it was more individualized when we first started, especially in the, in the Mysore setting, the self-practice setting. And then it started to get a little bit more and more uh, kind of dogmatic. Mm. As, the, as the decades went on, it became more of a religion. You know, and you have to do it like this, and it's got to go like that. And remembering from the very first time that I started practicing, we had different rhythms. We had different vinyasa counts. We had different uh, drifties. We had different uh, sequencing. We had different amount of breaths that we were taking. There was a different kind of emphasis on the whole thing. The different in a generalized manner that everyone was doing something different or different because he was giving different things to different people. The, well, the, there was a standardization around around what we were practicing, but yet he would he would kind of modify stuff according to the person. And um, for instance, the, the breath technique. When, when I first started, we were doing like around eight to 10 breaths. Right. And then as, the, as the, the group got bigger, then he condensed it to five. Yeah. And um, you, you learned it eight breaths also? Yeah, that's how Chuck used to teach it. Oh, okay. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was earlier on for some reason. Well, I mean, that's, I'm just saying that, you know, Chuck and Mati also were very much about, um, well, Mati especially, I mean, Chuck is also a brilliant teacher in his own right, for sure. But um, Mati was really about the individual, like Prem is speaking about. And I, I think that that's one of the main things that I would, someone was to ask us to how to describe our teaching in a mm. is we both feel very, um, like it's, it's, it's really important to us that people get seen as individuals mm -hmm. and that they are okay as they are. And whether or not they get 
to a certain series or do a pose in a certain way, or if we need to modify it or even take a pose out, it's totally okay. Yeah. And so I think that that's something that Prem and I feel really strongly about. It's about, at the end of the day, it's about healing and wellness. Yeah. Fantastic. As opposed yeah. to mm, mm, get this damn pose no matter what. So. <laughs> yeah. How many people can attain that anyway? Yeah. If you look at the global uh, population of Ashtanga yoga practitioners, how many people have progressed past primary series? How many people have learned advanced series? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. probably 5% maybe have learned third series, if that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And intermediate yeah. series, I don't know what the percentage is. But more nowadays, but there's people learning it faster than yeah. Um, <laughs> also, how, how many people? I mean, more, more interesting. How many people can sustain, like you know, yeah. an advanced series? Or, you know, I mean, yeah, you could do it a couple few times, you know, but can you keep it up <laughs> and make it sustainable and make and, and actually get up from the bed and do something with your day apart from you know just exactly. <laughs> dropping exactly. down after every day? Um, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times Adam, that we've had people come here and. We're, we're just like cutting their practice back tremendously because they share with us, like, I'm so exhausted mm, mm, mm. You know, doing yeah. this practice and then I have to go to work yeah. or yeah. I have to, you know, manage my kids or whatever. And it's like, why are you doing this to yourself? Well, yeah. you know, I don't know how Adam learned, but, um, I, and I, Prem also, we all learn differently, right? Yeah. So for example, um, I learned, Crazily enough, I mean, I learned, you know, I learned the long, the long method. <laughs> so it was like I did primary for five years and then started intermediate after like the fifth or sixth year. And then I did intermediate for another five years. And at one point I was doing all of intermediate and all primary back to back. Then after like 11 or so on years, I started a third series or advanced series and in the practice was always so long. It was always like you were adding a pose further and further and further. At one point, practice was like three hours long. And mm-hmm. I, you did you did advanced series for ten years. Didn't you? I did advanced series for almost ten years on a daily basis. So she was, I'm telling you, she's one of the few practitioners in the world that was able to maintain and pursue this practice without like any major injuries. <laughs> and that was part of what you told me that Mati said. Yeah. To, to the group of people that that she was teaching. She you tell she me. Said, she she said, she said, you know, I, she said to her group of students once, she said, I want my students to be the first generation of students to not have the kind of injuries that we yeah. had at the beginning. And if she was it was really important for her that her students felt good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was really, really special. And it doesn't mean that she didn't work you hard, like you were saying. Like, oh no, she did. <laughs> yeah, she, she would, she, she would really yeah. command the room and make people work hard. But she respected everybody's limitations. Absolutely, and, absolutely. She was extremely respectful to how you felt, and you needed more prodding, also. Yeah, she always was prodding me. <laughs> she, you know, from an Ayurvedic standpoint, she's got like this kapha element, right? She's got a lot of pitta, a lot of fire, but the kapha, she could be, if she didn't have that, that constant prodding and, and yeah, discipline. Machi was, was really good like that. It's probably yeah. why you weren't injured because you have that, you know, 
ability to hold back a bit maybe rather than push it. I mean, you know, most people would have done primary and second, you know, nowadays, you know, in a, if they could in a couple of years, right? And then yeah. it's not really integrated fully. And, you know, um, yeah. to, to that end, I mean, how how do you approach it? You talk about taking things out and adding things in. Can you give any practical examples of the kind of stuff that you might be doing there? You know? I'll give a quick example. Like, for example, if, if this happens a lot, we'll, we'll see a student, maybe even, I'll say a woman student, and she's doing this ridiculously long practice. Maybe she's doing all of primary and then all of intermediate up to Karanavasana. If she has a good intention and a good focus and she's strong enough, we just take the primary away. Mm-hmm. If you're ready to do intermediate, just do your Surinamaskar A and B. A lot of times we'll tell people to do all of the standing poses instead of just stopping at Purvottanasana. Yeah. And uh, and then we'll have them continue on and into intermediate. So And we'll 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 take we'll take different poses out if we see that it's it's inappropriate. Like um any kind of uh you know Ardabada position. Or um, well, if, like, yeah, like, if someone's having a knee issue yeah. and their hip is about, they can carry on. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. They can carry on with yeah. a modification yeah. and not so, stop them at that point. Yeah, yeah you can't do that pose. Well, I, mean, I think I heard, I heard from Nancy when I hosted her years ago. She was saying how that you know when she originally got the series is where the stuff that she couldn't do was taken out and then gradually as the body became more flexible and you know and she got into it more then the stuff kind of got to get put back in again you know yeah um, yeah exactly it makes it makes more sense um, I think so I don't believe in uh, you know one of the things that we don't really like to do is if somebody um, like for example let's say somebody can't do Mari Chasana D and then mm-hmm. they feel like they can't ever learn anything else yes. is ridiculous you give them a modification and then you let them move on to the next pose yeah I mean it's it, it just so nonsensical to me I mean if I just speak a yeah. second it's like you've got the se- sequence you've got loads of tools you've got lots of postures later on that can help with those things and you know you stop you stop someone there so they either get despondent and just give up which is the very worst scenario altogether which you're almost promoting or they squeeze themselves so hard into the position that they break themselves, you know, they do it, but break themselves in doing it and then also give up. It's like, yeah, <laughs> what's the point, what's the point yeah. of that, you know, just, just to pursue a, the, the perfection of a so-called ideal out there somewhere, you know? Um, That's right. That's right. It's exactly right. This is the biggest problem with the Shtanga. It's, it's, the, it's the control aspect and the, the dogmatic approach to it that really turns people off. But if you look at it in a holistic perspective and really see that anyone who's who's able to move, I mean, you have to have a certain degree of fitness to be able to do a shtanga. Although we've had some people that have come that have been super overweight and they were like determined to do something. Mm -hmm. Or or very old too, like starting in their... I think think it can be done. I think actually anybody can do it if they have the right teacher and if they're open to modifications and and, and making changes. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Ashtanga is just, you know, when we talk about Ashtanga Yoga, we're just talking about, 
you know, a, a principle of Tristana, right? And a style of, you know, breathing and moving. And, you know, I mean, to that end, you know, like how, to what degree you do that, you know, how athletically you do that is kind of stylistic or depends on age, doesn't it? But it can be done by anyone, of course. Um, so it seems like you're, I mean, maybe you're doing something similar with the, I want to talk about the conference work you've done um, a little bit. And, it, you know, that seems like a kind of dissemination of the kind of or you know something to do with getting people together and breaking down some kind of un, uneffective myths or you know how do you you know what was the intent behind your these these fantastic conferences you've been doing over the last few years hopefully we'll continue after the current times <laughs> yeah um my, my original uh feeling about it when i first thought about it was when right after patabi joyce died, I started thinking about like, how can we get together and, and really come together more as a, uh, as a family. So it was, it was kind of brewing and it was kind of in the works. I wanted, I was going to do something in Sri Lanka, but it wasn't the right timing. Yeah. I remember you sent out a letter to people. Yeah. I was, we were, we were in Sri Lanka before Bali. Mm. And, um, I sent out a letter to, to many senior teachers and they, they were they were pretty open to it, but I didn't get an enthusiastic response. Yeah. Monty was very enthusiastic yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> there was a few people that were like, well, that's a great idea. And then it just kind of laid dormant for a while because we were in a transition from Sri Lanka to Bali. And then in Bali, we started to, there was a political kind of shift within the Ashtanga world. And then I said, we, we really need to, to do a conference right now. And that's when I invited, you know, Manju mm. and David Williams. And um, the first one was, was, it was great. We had a really good turnout. And um, I wanted to, to just see where everybody was at and how it was presented and what the feeling was, you know. And it was very interesting just to see everybody's take on it and to see the theme of what we all wanted to do and have happened. And with, with the, the ending of it, it always kind of felt like we all wanted the same thing. We wanted to, to really to be together and, and have this, uh, this experience of helping people from the standpoint of the power of, of the method and, and not being, again, dogmatic about it. Because mm -hmm. we started to see that it was going a little bit too religious in, in Mysore after Patabi Joyce died. So that's why that's why I really wanted to get people together that were senior teachers and see how we could support each other in the um, in this uh, ongoing pursuit of of what it was going to look like from from that point on. So all the older teachers generally in a sense that, you know, it's an individual method, it can be used appropriately and practically, right? And the, the schism or the, the, the discrepancy is between the more modern take, which is more generalized and standardized, right? Yeah, I think yeah. Um, from, from my standpoint, it was, it was uh, the perspective that I saw that was going on was it was it was wanting to be in more of a, a controlled situation that it was labeled in a particular way that you you start with samastiti you end with this and there's this many vinyasas and 
it started to get like very mechanical mm. and very everybody do the same thing. And that, that wasn't my experience from very early on. I could see in myself and I could see with other people that we had to shift and change things. And especially when I started learning Ayurveda, it just made a light bulb went off and it was like, oh my God, this, this is it. The, the Ayurvedic element is is the individualization of, of this particular method. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I mean, I really want to use this time to talk about that now. So can I just ask you to explain the, the very briefly the relationship of yoga to Ayurveda and how you might use the Ayurveda to complement the yoga? Sure. Um, again, it's it's a very interesting um, phenomena of, of the Ashtanga method when it was put out. There was a buzz going on at that particular time that it was it was a system that was that was meant to be taught to young boys, young brahmacharya boys, because they had a lot of you know sexual energy, and it was some some way to get it out of them. Do a lot of vinyasa, a lot of you know surya namaskara between the poses, and it wasn't necessarily something that was to be taught to other people. That was the buzz that was going around within the yoga community, within Iyengar and. Uh, Deskachar, which was uh, Krishnamacharya's son. And that was even, the, uh, even in the early days? That was... Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. It was like kind of poo-pooed, like... I remember the very first uh, yoga conference in the... It, where was it held? It was in California. I think it was in Murrieta or something like that. I'm trying to think. It was called Unity and Yoga. It wasn't really unity in yoga. There was a lot of kind of like, well, my yoga is better than your yoga kind of thing, you know? Right, yeah. um, So we would attend each other's classes and, you know, if if you went to an Iyengar class, they'd say, why are you breathing like that? Oh, you must be a stronger person. (laughs) Um, So there there was a lot of uh, debate at that particular time, you know, Ashtanga is not meant to be taught to anyone other than teenagers, you know, and teenage boys, basically. And I didn't see that. And I said, okay, well, let's let's take it on as an experiment. And that's always, that's been my my, uh, perspective from very early on. You know, okay, I'm going to take it day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, and see what happens. You know, as I progress, as I age, and as I'm as I'm working with different ages of people, I could see that it, it needed to be modified. Mm. And when I did when I did find out about the Ayurvedic method, I could see that a lot of people that were interested in Ashtanga were Vata people, were Pitta people, people that Vata people love movement. They like a lot of action and movement and intricacy and doing many things at the same time. Pitta people like the order. They like the consistency. They like the intensity of the practice, the focus. Yeah. And um, so, and the Kapha people, they, they really, they, they weren't really interested in Ashtanga. But if you came into the practice, which most people did, with a with a, a constitution of vata pitta or pitta vata, which was the primary 
uh, constitution of people entering into this practice, if you just went into it with the mindset and the energy of those 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 doshas operating in you, you are going to hurt yourself. You are going to overdo it. So I started to see that Vatic people needed the discipline, but they needed to slow down. They needed to modify and slow down and, and put it into a context that would help to pacify their Vata. So they wouldn't be, when they were done with their practice, they didn't have like this nervous, mm. fanatic mm. energy. And the Pitta people, they were so, they were so uh, fanatic about getting poses, mastering them, getting, you know, shoved into a pose and, and getting bound into something. <laughs> and I would, I would completely resist and just say, just be patient, you know. You need to just... But it's a kind of quality, it's like a quality of the way that you translate the method when you're, when you're working with individual people so you don't kind of enable their tendencies already, right? I mean, exactly, exactly. Because if you, again... With, but as an, as an observer of, of how it works, that you immediately see people coming into to class and their, their vata nature comes out immediately. I think, yeah. And if you just let them go that way and you just keep giving them more and pushing them and going, go faster, faster, faster. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, you're not supporting them in the best way that you could. People show up as they are on their map. You can see right away within the first, really within the first class. Yeah. You can see. All their tendencies, all their samskaras are there. They're they're completely visible. So as a teacher, you need to to look at each person individually. And how are you going to like really provide them the correct mirror in which they, they need to see themselves? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important um, that this concept of individuality is really embraced throughout this method because because the method is um, it's a series it's several series right but even within the series you follow you're supposed to follow this pose follows that pose. there's a lot of pressure for people to fit in in the way that they think they're supposed to fit in. And um, I think that that's one of the things about Ashtanga that I actually think can be very detrimental. Yes. Yeah. You don't have, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I I know that I might upset people by saying this, but it's like, I I find now after 30 years of practice, it's intelligence to see a student and go, okay, you know what? They need to do this a little bit differently for their health. Um, I think that's happened all the time. It's hard, isn't it? Because you've got these big numbers now and you've got, you know, another system of setting up a value judgment, you know, against yourself or reframing yourself amongst your peers. And I think it can easily lend to exacerbating tendencies that are there, you know, certainly those Vata tendencies or the Pitta tendencies of pushing, competing, you know, achieving, you know. Yeah. And and 
yeah, the, the practice in that sense, you know, I mean, I remember doing, you know, you're in at Mysore, you're getting pushed, you've got all these peers around you, everyone's, you know, I mean, in a way, you know, it brings out, you know, the effort that you, you know, might not make on your own, you know, but it's also competitive, isn't it? And so you end up kind of competing against your peers, you know, and you think, well, how did I get here? You know, I started yoga, you know, with dreadlocks and the tie-dye, you know, jumper, and I'm ending up with a kind of bad athlete you know (laughs) (laughs) competing and getting so kind of stirred up in my own head doing advanced day in my store that you know you go home you make a smoothie and I almost blended my whole hand up in in, you know in the blender you know like because you're so kind of you know shaky do you know what I mean like that that wasn't really what I what I signed up for somehow but somewhere along the way it can really it can really kind of get corrupted you know and before yeah. you know it, you're into something completely different to, to your original t- intentions, you know, and that, that's why. We, we, we all need to step back and, and take a, a look at what, why are we doing this? Mm, mm, mm. What, is the, what is the point of asana practice? Right. And what's the bigger picture of yoga? And the asana practice, the Ashtanga Vinyasa asana practice, it is a particular method, but you need to you need to really walk sensitively into the world with it if you're going to teach it Absolutely. and present it in a way that's, that's, um, that, that people can, can digest. Mm-hmm. Mm. A digest is a good word. It's similar like to eating. You know, you try to eat a bunch of food all at the same time. It's not going to digest. Right, and so it's, well, you're not going to be nourished. You're not going to be nourished. You may be overeating. You may be a bulimic yogi. You know, like oh, too many yoga poses, and then throwing yeah. up. When you <laughs> and I mean, I think also to use the yoga in the world, not make your whole life center around simply the accomplishment of a morning, you know, practice to yeah, exactly to kind of prove yourself to to what ends right like to make the yoga work for you in life and i just wanted you know slightly uh crowbar the conversation but you know i wanted to briefly to touch upon you know anxiety and you know um dealing with difficult emotions and you know prem you lost your daughter a few years ago and i you know i I kind of to cite scott's podcast that he recently did with you I heard that you had some negative feedback about how you were dealing with that grief, you know, and the same with BKS Yengar when he lost his wife, you know, people would say, well, you're a yogi, you know, you, you should, you know, why, why are you feeling this, you know, and people have come up to me the same and said, well, you know, I ought to not feel this, you know, I ought to not suffer. I've done the practice for 10 years, 20 years, like I shouldn't be feeling, so, you know, this way right now. Can you say right. something about that, you know, to just to put people's minds at rest a little bit about feelings and yoga and, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, see, again, being being a human being, mm. we're, we're we're set with a, a particular aspect of of who we are, and we have a physical body. We all have the same parts. They they work in a particular way, and um, and then there's the mental emotional side of us. And for me, to put it into context. The asana and pranayama practice is for mental and uh, and physical well-being. And the the spiritual part of of yoga to me is the meditational aspect. And so it's it's a it's definitely it's not all lumped together, even though it, it appears to be. 
Mm, mm. The, the spiritual part of us, the spirit and the consciousness of who we are, is completely separate and distinct from our mental, emotional, and physical part of who we are and our interaction with this, this plane of existence. So the tools that we have are beneficial, although if you just take them as a physical practice and you just take it as like a, a yoga athlete, it doesn't necessarily help you. Mm, mm. I mean, you could be fit, you could be strong and flexible, but has it really helped you to see the, the overall big picture of, of what's going on? And so that's why it was, it really hit me really hard because as I said in, in, uh, in Scott's podcast, it really humbled me. It, it humbled me. It humiliated me because Again, I had this, this set of um, like, okay, um, I've been doing this for decades. And all right, my daughter dies. How am I going to deal with this? And I saw that in the beginning, I, I handled it pretty, pretty well. I, I mean, I went through it, but, but then I started to see that, wow. Like I was really, really attached to this young girl. And I, the, the biological DNA connection of a, a sibling, you know, someone that you, you brought into this world, it's really intense. And so the feelings are going to be the most intense. And that's why people would come up to me and say, wow, that's, that's got to be the most horrible thing that a human being could experience. And I, I have to agree. I, I can't think of anything worse to experience as a human being is to lose a child. Mm -hmm. And so it was an opportunity for me to, to, to check in and see, wow, okay, what, what am I doing here? Okay, I have, a, I have a really good body. I have a sharp, clear mind. I can focus and I have, I'm pretty intelligent, you know, and we were doing really well. Like we had built this whole place. It's spectacular. Our, our place here in Bali is, is amazing. We're in the middle of the jungle. You know, lots of students were coming. We had great reputation. Everything was flowing, money, everything. And then, mm. boom, you know, my daughter's taken. And in, in retrospect and looking at this over the last seven years, it's... Um, you know, attachments are really strong. And it's it's made me see that the that our our existence here is to withdraw ourselves out of this this drama that we're in, you know, and that everything that we're experiencing is just a temporary kind of bleep on the screen. And everything that has happened and is happening is what's supposed to happen. And so these experiences are, are part of, of why we're here. And I could see clearly now that it was there was nothing that I could have done. There was nothing that she could have done. Mm. That it was set, it was set on a timeline that on this particular day, at this particular time, she would leave her body. And that's what happened. And then what what are we left with? We have to go through 
all the physical and mental, emotional things that we're left with, with being a human being and going about that gracefully. And more and more grace has come to me when I turn and I, I look within myself and ask for that. And that's, that's my only, that's my saving grace is, is the strength and the fortitude for me to carry on has been an inner journey. And the mental, emotional stuff has been, wow, it's been a whirlwind. You know, did you use, really, yoga, use yoga to deal with that at all, or did it inform your, you know, your processing it? What do you do when you have an intensity of feeling? Do you practice or do you not? Or, you know, can you synthesize that? Or you know? Well, you know, I, I obviously kept practicing. Um, mm-hmm. I know that it was, it was something that it's, it saved my physical life. You know, mm-hmm. if I wasn't practicing and, and if I would have dropped everything at that particular point and just said, screw it, I'm going to stop practicing, I'm going to stop eating good, I'm going to stop taking care of myself, I would not be here today. It would have been a, a slow suicide, but I would not be in the physical condition that I am now. And um, so it's helped me on that end. The, the, but I can tell you, and I can tell everybody that's listening to this, the answer is in meditation and the connection that we have inside. And, and we need to find that place inside ourselves. And for me, I was, I was blessed enough to have someone come in my life that, that gave me the answer to go inside. And of course, you know, the stubbornness of my mind, it was like, oh, that's too easy. That's, that's the easy way out. And it's not. It's, it's, it's the only answer to, to everyone's dilemma because everyone is going to leave their body at one particular time or another. We're not immortal. We're not physically immortal. So it's, it's, it's an important thing for all of us to get in touch with dying. And the practice that I learned, the meditation I learned is called dying while living. So you actually withdraw the energy from, from your body and you have an experience of dying and you bring your attention to the third eye and you experience light and sound like when you, when you actually die. So I'm, I'm more familiar with the process now. And I'm not, I'm not afraid of dying, which is a biggie. Yeah. And what, what tradition um, of meditation was that? It's mind. called Surat Shabad Yoga. Surat Shabad Yoga. It's, uh, it's the yoga of focusing your attention on the sound current. And the sound current, there's, there's a... It's... it's um, the sound that is reverberating in, in us and all around us is the sound of, of OM. Okay? And we know that. And there's, there's something inside us, there's a, there's a sound inside of us that if we, when we still our mind and our body and we withdraw our consciousness to the third eye, we can hear that sound and we can see that light. And that takes us home. That takes us to our original home. And our original home is deep inside ourselves. And being deep inside ourselves, it goes into this, another a vortex of being connected with everything. And so for us to, to sit and go inside 
is our deep connection to what yoga is all about. Mm. That's truly what yoga means, the union of our true self. And our true self is lying within ourselves. It's not going anywhere, but going inside, searching inside. So the- and these other things, the asana practice and pranayama and diet and all these things are just to keep the physical body, mind functioning in a, a very efficient way. Absolutely. That's, that's what it's meant for. It's not spiritual. I can, I, can, I can tell you that it's not spiritual. If you can do advanced practices, it's not a spiritual practice necessarily. It's just preparation. Ashtanga yoga is preparation for the higher yoga. Yeah, and this kind of feeling has come since you know the you know the crisis you went through um, more in the recent years rather than I mean I remember reading your book years ago and you know it definitely portrays that you know someone who has got it figured out you know did did you find that that after you know the passing of your daughter you had a conflict and then you kind of got into the meditation or you know or did you use yeah. those tools from the book or, you know, how did you feel? Has it been, what's changed, you know, between the time you wrote the book and the crisis and then after? Yeah, it's very, very interesting because in the book, I, I talk about this particular meditation mm. and um, I, I lost context with it. Mm. I lost contact with it. And when Shanti died, I was immediately thrown back into it. I didn't know where else to go. And I, I just naturally started sitting like that again. Mm. And then a new teacher of this particular tradition came into my life and he was of that lineage. So it was like, kind of like how, how, how dense can you be? But for me, it was like, okay, it's, it's back in my face again. It's like, it came around and I had everything going for me. On the outside yeah. and on the inside too, I felt quite good. But then it was like boom, you know. And I, I just got got my 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 bearings cut off because I wasn't in touch with that part of myself. It wasn't priority. It wasn't a priority, and now it is. Mm. And everything else takes a second place for me. Now, my, the most important practice that I do is meditation. And the other things, I still practice them for sure because I know they take care of my physical health. Mm. So I'm very, I'm very grateful to have those tools. And I'm very, I'm very happy to teach those tools to people. But I'm not, I'm not a spiritual teacher. I can prepare people for that journey, but I'm not... I'm not um, considered like a sadguru, a guru of the highest level. I'm a sadguru. Sadguru is someone who teaches sadhana. I can teach you sadhana. I can teach you practices. Mm, yeah. yeah. You know, I can teach you practices that will keep you healthy and strong and vital and, you know, good digestion. A lot of people listening to the podcast might not know what sadguru means. No, he's not calling himself a guru. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, just to clarify, <laughs> there's, there's a, the spelling is sad, like S A D Sadhana and Satya, Satguru, is the highest guru, and it's like a Christ or a Buddha. 
that comes to this earth to wake us up and tell us, hey, this is what it's all about, you know? And it's kind of our ticket back home. It's like, oh my God, I completely forgot why I was here. There's very few of those around. <laughs> and I, and your, the, the answer to your question is, I wrote this book and I had, everything was there. It was all, it was all put in place. And then it was like, I forgot again. So I had to have this remembrance of this incident of losing a child to have me remember again. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how easy it is to slip back into this slumber of like, mm-hmm. wow, okay, what am I doing? Well, especially, so if, you know, if everything's going well for you in the world, it's oh, super, super distracting, exactly. isn't it? Because you're kind oh of buying God. into it again. You know, it's so tempting. Oh, I mean, you know, yeah. you've got all the stuff, oh, yeah. you've got everything going on, you know, and you're drawn into it. I mean, just to go back to something you said on the physical front and, you know, the need to take care of the body and, you know, it, you know obviously we know, we know there's Indian gurus who've never done an asana in their life, you know. They've achieved profound states. Yeah. Is, yeah, exactly. you know, is it necessary to take care of the physical? And maybe I'd like to hear from Radha a tiny bit on them. Um, just briefly, briefly, I never get to talk about diets, you know. Can you um, give any recommendations from an Ayurvedic perspective on taking care of the physical? Well, I think one of the things I can say is when you take care of your physical body, you feel good. And when you feel good, your mind is more balanced. Um, you, it, it changes your mood. You can do things like yoga. You can do things like meditation because when you, it's, it, you only have it as an advantage if you feel good, right? That's I mean, right. you can still do those things when you don't feel good, but it's not going to be as fruitful. It's hard to do it when you're suffering physically. Absolutely. Or, yeah. yeah. So how you take care of your body is, of course, going to only enhance meditation. It's only going to enhance your yoga practice. It's going to enhance your relationships. It's going to enhance how your mind works. Now, having said that, everybody needs to take care of their body ayurvedically from an individual place. So what works for me is going to be different for Prem, and what works for Prem is going to be different for you. And I think that that's another thing that we try to focus on when we work with people is is some people need mental nutrition. Some people need physical nutrition. Some people need emotional nutrition. Everyone needs a different form of nourishment. And as a practitioner, what I find is when I talk to people like in a consultation or when we have a consultation with someone, they all need some form of like medicine I want to say but it's not obviously not medicine it's Mm -hmm. they everybody needs something different for someone it's a diet for someone else it's how they approach their practice for someone else it's they just need to be listened to and so everybody needs a certain form of healing in order to heal their body and I don't know that I exactly answered your question but that was what was feeling impulsive for me to to express Mm, mm, mm. There's no yeah. There's there's, there's nothing again. Like standard a, general tip you can give for diet, you know, because people are always saying, "Oh, what should I eat?" You know, should I be vegan? Should I be raw? Should I eat meat? Or, you, know? you know, see the thing is, mm-hmm. is that truthfully, I think that the quick way to answer that is it depends on what you want. It's, well, it depends on what you want, and it depends on what makes you balanced. So. What makes you balanced is going to be different than what makes me balanced. 
So what brings balance to, so for some people, veganism brings a balance to their body. For someone else, it might completely throw their body out of balance. So it's not about being a vegan or following a particular diet. It's discovering through your own intuition, what is the right thing for you? And how do you get to your intuition? You get to that through your practices. So to me, that would be the answer to that question. But we could like talk, we could talk for hours about food and nutrition. (laughs) That's a whole different thing. I mean, what's your, what what kind of, practices or general rules do you use in your own diet in the way you eat? Because, I mean, you look pretty healthy there. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. But, I mean, I think uh, we're not really rigid about diet in a certain way. I mean, um, I guess, you know. Yeah, I remember you posting about your pizza place in Bali. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look good. Look good. <laughs> Those are very good friends of ours. I have ate pizza. Yeah. I I think following, I think following, um, like the middle path in a lot of ways is what works for me. And I think Prem would probably say something similar. I mean, we're not, uh, we're not really fanatics about any one particular diet in particular, although I could say, you know, maybe I predominantly eat a vegan diet, but I am not a hundred percent vegan and that's just a fact. So I guess some people might get upset about that, but it's just the truth. (laughs) Yeah, so you go out for you know go out for a piece and a beer. Would you or you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't personally really drink alcohol. I mean, not so much. I mean, maybe at a holiday or something. But um, we definitely eat pizza. We eat pizza sometimes. Yeah, I mean, but it's not. A, it's you know, it's not like a, we don't even do it once a week. We're, we're just we do it. We, every we have week. it every once in a while. We feel too. I think yeah. I like to follow like the 85-15 rule. 85% of the time I do a certain way of eating and living and then 15% of the time, well, anything goes sort of. I mean, maybe that's a little bit strong. but I think, you know, the thing is if you're going to do this for a lifetime, then you can't be killing yourself all the time, you know. I mean, it's just otherwise, yeah, yeah, you end up having a very sad diet, a literally sad diet where you're just existing on quinoa and steamed spinach and, you know, and yeah. Also seems fill your heart, you know. Too, you know, you go to a, an event or something, and you have a your nephew has a birthday. Yeah, you have a piece of cake. You know, <laughs> it's like relax. Yeah, I told Rana the other day, make some cookies. He's my he's uh he gets tortured by my morning smoothie. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have a bit of greens or something. We've kind of almost run out of time on the format of the hour. Um, I'm just wanted to say on that note, um, we usually end on saying, do you, do you, I, I've almost stopped asking this question, but do you have any, do you have any guilty pleasures? Let's see. Cookies. Um, Cookies. Well, I um, love, I love chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> that would be a guilty pleasure. Chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> Together, like a Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> when do you have that? Are you sneaking? <laughs> no, I haven't had it for quite some time. Yeah, but he, asked, never, like, he asked me what a guilty pleasure was. So. Well, you gotta have it. Um, I um, yeah, I guess I love Italian food, so a, a pizza would be a guilty pleasure for me. Yeah, we tr- we try to. We both yeah. have Italian heritage, so. <laughs> 
we have our categories yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of food is basically we eat for some some pleasure, but mostly for nutrition. And the times where it's right. like a pleasurable meal is like pizza. It's like a fun food. I wouldn't consider pizza like healthy. No. But it's not going to kill you. <laughs> so we would have it, we'll have it every once in a while. But predominantly, our diet is super nutritious. Yeah, I mean, I love the food that I cook because I feel like I put my heart into it and I choose the ingredients like with a lot of consciousness. It's not like yeah. a steam broccoli and throw it on a plate. Like, I'm really like, hmm, what ingredients do I want to use today? What is fresh in the market today? What can I get? What's the reason I'm making this? You know, like, so there's a real, there's a lot of passion in what I'm cooking for mm -hmm. us. And so, you know, that also gives me a lot of excitement. I love food for that, for yeah. that reason. Yeah. I, I would not be here if it wasn't for <laughs> I would just be eating toast and cereal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the other way around for us. I mean, I... I um I was a chef in London, you know, before I started oh, teaching wow. yoga. So you know, I've always been into cooking. So, but Teresa always jokes, my wife, if if it wasn't for you, because I came to Purple Valley, you met Teresa, my wife at Purple Valley Prem before I arrived. But I came as a cook. I came as a cook there. Oh, and wow. Teresa always said, you know, if it wasn't for you, I'd just be eating white rice and soy sauce. You know, but <laughs> yeah, that, that, would be, that would be her meal. Yeah. Um, so. But finally, um, do you have any? Uh, what, what would you say is an, something an inspiration? What 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 is a person, a place, uh, a book, or something that you can say on the top of your head that really you know that that really inspires me? I, for me, my my greatest inspiration is is my 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 guru. Is uh, his name is Iswar Puri. Iswar Puri. And anyone can can look him up, and he's got uh, many many videos on YouTube. He's uh, 90, 93 years old now. He's very inspiring. <laughs> he's a powerful man. And yeah, he's a light. He's a light he's being. A, you know, yeah, he's really special. full of love and and compassion, and that's all he's about. His whole the whole path that he teaches is all about love, and. Uh, Meditation is all about love. It's it's a it's a loving connection to yourself and to God within yourself, and that's all you need. There's techniques and and connection things, you know, and those kind of things the mind likes. The mind likes technique, but truly, honestly, the the main thing that we really need is just bhakti, just the love, the love that will that will connect us. And from that, we're, we're blessed. So Ishwar is, um, I, I would highly recommend anyone that has a, a feeling to check him out. Absolutely. Uh, to listen to him speak about life and living. And, um, yeah, that's what I would leave with. Yeah, I don't think I could top that, actually. I have, <laughs> I've had my own experience with, experiences with Ishwar as well. And he isn't an asana yogi at all yeah I mean, he's never done asana and he's never discouraged us he, no, he came, to our, he came no. to our center and blessed it he was yeah. here and he 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 says keep doing it keep teaching people this is good for their health he's so humble uh, where is he based he's chicago. in chicago illinois he's originally okay. from, he's originally from the punjab but yeah, he's indian from birth but yeah. he he came to america 
in the uh, in the sixties. His teacher told him that there was going to be a, a big spiritual revolution in America. Mm-hmm. He said that's going to be the next epic, you know, epicenter for spirituality was in America, mm-hmm. and um, and and just in the West, you know, in general, and you can see it. Like China and India is becoming more materialistic. Mm, mm. And the West, the Western countries are becoming more spiritually inclined. Mm, mm, mm. So, yeah, he, he went to America in the early 60s and connected there. And, um, just yeah. a beautiful, just a beautiful man. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he teaches meditation, doesn't charge anything for it. He takes it. nothing. Spiritual teachers never charge anything. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I'm going to check him out if I'm ever yeah, in the please. vicinity. Yeah, I will do. Um, thanks very much for coming um, okay. and your time, and it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank Adam. you so much, Adam. It was really great. Thank you.